Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Beringer Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients, the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the AEP Practice Life podcast. I am Mike Pownell and joined once again by Dr. Jessica Dunbar. Jessica, good evening. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Mike? I'm doing really well. I'm loving summer. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> loving summer. So in continuing with, we've been talking with all of the subcommittees, part of the AAP uh, sustainability and practice, last but certainly not least, and one I am super excited to hear about is the subcommittee on emergency coverage. We have four guests here and Jessica, I'm going to pass it over to you to introduce everybody, have everybody introduce themselves. But before we do that, just always want to make sure we remember that uh, this is brought to you by Beringer Engelheim with partners like that enables us to do things like this podcast. So over to you, Jessica. Great. Thank you, Mike. I have been excited about this topic. I feel like emergency coverage is such a challenging but rewarding part of our job. So I'm uh, thankful to this group for brainstorming ideas to make it better. So let me go ahead and introduce our guests. Today, we have two uh, co-chairs of this emergency coverage subcommittee. So let's go ahead and start with Dr. Leanne Kubelbeck. And Leanne, can you tell us a little bit about your practice? Thank you guys for having us. Leanne Kubelbeck, and I practice just outside of Tampa, Florida in Brandon. The name of our practice is Brandon Equine Medical Center. We are a referral practice that morphed into a general practice as well over the last 10 to 15 years. And we've currently got a seven-doctor practice with uh, several surgeons in internal medicine and, and a couple of GPs. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And next, let's hear from our second chair of this subcommittee, Dr. Mike Erskine or Erskine? Uh, Erskine. Tell us about your practice. I believe you're in Maryland. Dr. Mike Erskine, and uh, I have an equine practice in Maryland. It's a general ambulatory practice, a large group practice. It's probably formatted around a co-op. And then I'm also the director of the Marion DuPont Scott Equine Medical Center, which is located in Leesburg, Virginia, and is part of the Virginia Tech's vet school. So you're pretty busy. Yes. <laughs> Probably overseeing a lot of emergency coverage, I'm, I'm guessing. Sure. Yeah. And then let's hear from two of our other guests who I believe are also members of this subcommittee. Dr. Jessica Martin, would love to hear from you. Hi. I'm a, an associate veterinarian in Northwestern New Jersey. I've been a veterinarian for about six years, joined my practice right out of an internship, and we are a two-doctor ambulatory practice. And we just recently will be hiring our third associate. We just 
within the past year and a half formed an emergency cooperative. So we'll be talking a little bit about that today. That's awesome. I'm so glad you're contributing and, and part of this chat this evening. And last but not least, let's uh, introduce you to Dr. James Beckman. Hi, I am a, uh, well, I've got a couple of hats. One is the daytime practice. We have a three vet ambulatory practice. And then about three years ago, we started uh, a 100% equine emergency practice. And we've been going with that for the region for about three years now. Awesome. As a practitioner, I'm just super excited to, to hear about this. So let's just talk about the subcommittee. So talk about a bit of the history of the subcommittee when you were formed and what basically were the goals that you were instructed or encouraged or what the group came up with as, as terms of the goals of the subcommittee. Uh, maybe, Mike, we can start with you on that one. So uh, we were formed last October of uh, 2022 as part of the uh, Commission on Equine Veterinary Sustainability. Our goals at the time were really to just uh, research emergency coverage. Uh, it had been recognized that emergency coverage was a major factor in some of the challenges that we've been having with recruitment and retention, particularly of uh, early career veterinarians. So what we uh, did is uh, comprise a subcommittee that included a diverse number of uh, equine veterinarians across the country uh, in different disciplines, practice structures, and to really bring a lot of insight to the, to the committee. As we started to develop an idea about some of the existing models and strategies to cope with the stresses of uh, emergency coverage, we really identified a number of those uh, types of models. It actually became quite interesting because we were actually able to look at existing models and strategies uh, that veterinarians were already employing and then trying to get some granularity around those processes. So as a goal for the committee, we wanted to, on the first hand, uh, really try to understand exactly what the challenges for ER coverage are, what are different models and strategies to cope with those challenges, develop a communication strategy uh, to share that information with our members uh, and potentially with horse owners and clients, all with the goal of assisting the AAEP in addressing the recruitment and retention uh, challenges for the equine vets. Okay. What I would love to hear about then is, so we've already gone over the goals of the subcommittee. Who makes up the subcommittee? So we have four of you here today. How many members are there? We have a total of 17 members. So we have 14 volunteer veterinarians that have all been recruited or volunteered to help on the subcommittee. And then we have the two staff members, Sally Baker's very important in helping us kind of keep everything herding cats. And then uh, our board liaison is Dr. Rob Franklin. So it's it's been a great group to work with. You know, it's been very diverse from large group practices to solo practitioners. So we feel like we've done a good job of really representing all of the different voices within the profession. What we've really seen is there's not one model that's going to serve everyone. And so that's become apparent really quickly. We knew that we needed to really flesh all of these out and let each practitioner choose the model that's going to work best for them. That's great. I think that diverse group is probably the key to that. Did you guys get together recently for a meeting? We did. Uh, Mid-May, right, Mike, is when we were all together. We all met up in Atlanta. It was nice to have a face-to-face -face meeting. Yeah. 
you can do a lot on Zoom for sure, but I think we were able to dig a little deeper when we were face-to-face and spend a day in a room really talking through all this stuff. Absolutely. The obvious question then and is what has the subcommittee accomplished so far? You've talked about the goals and you know, there was a handful of goals, but boy, those, those are intense goals. And so I, I can't imagine you just sort of like checked them off a list within two weeks and you're done. So Mike, can you maybe talk about what the committee, the subcommittee has accomplished so far? Yeah, that's actually one of the strengths of the subcommittee is that when we had our initial meetings by Zoom, uh, we did have an in-person meeting at AAEP 2022. And we really committed to, on the one hand, look, uh, sort of comprehensively at the whole landscape of emergency coverage and to work on deliverables that would be comprehensive in nature. But we were also very committed to uh, rolling things out as they were ready and moving things, pushing things out to the membership. So very quickly, we uh, began to, to work on content for articles that have been published. We've had one published uh, in March. Where was that one published? Uh, that was the Equa Management article. Okay. And we've got another article in, in Equa Management that'll come out late in August, early September. We've also had members participate in roundtables and webinars. We've had them uh, provide interview uh, information to equine media. And so, again, just sort of pushing things out uh, as they become available. Would you be able to summarize the March article for any of us that haven't seen that yet? Sure. The March article, uh, I believe the title was Client Education Strategies to Prevent Practitioner Burnout. Uh, And again, I think what we were looking at is that we wanted some immediate material or deliverables that our membership could utilize uh, right away. And so this was, again, kind of predicated on... uh, crisis within the, the equine profession and getting information out to folks so that they could start to implement that immediately into their practices. I would encourage everybody to look at that article in the March Equimanagement. Would you be willing to summarize what the August article will be about? We're still working out the details of that, but it's uh, sort of the, the broad category would be to look at emergency coverage models that are working and to help to describe or tell stories about different models. And so we've got a couple of guests here, Jessica and James, uh, that would be examples of those models, co-ops, as well as emergency exclusive practices that have been set up. But again, I think that we're very much in the mindset that uh, we want to get some of these uh, profiles of the practices or models of the practices that uh, our membership can take a look at. And uh, as Leanne uh, mentioned earlier, we we know that one size won't fit all. And so trying to provide sort of the attributes and descriptions of the various models and strategies so that uh, members can kind of take a look at it and see what resonates with them. That's great. I think it's great to talk about the different options that are working for, for AEP members. And that probably leads us very well into the next question that Mike will have. Yeah. So what are you hoping to accomplish the remainder of the year? So these are big goals. So what's next for this subcommittee? We do have coming up in just two weeks, we've got a virtual roundtable that's going to be chaired by two of our members, Dr. Carl Wright and Megan Graves. And that's that's on um, relief veterinarians. 
you know, we do think that there's obviously a need for relief veterinarians and, and it's so common in companion animal practice, but it hasn't really taken hold in equine. And we're hoping that if we can increase awareness and uh, maybe that could, could be a value to our members. But probably the, the biggest thing for us is the development of, we broke down again, all the different models that we thought were in use and valid. And we've broken those models down and we're trying to develop toolkits that we can have to the membership. Our goal is to have those ready to roll by convention, which will basically, these toolkits would consist of client communication strategies of how these emergency programs will work, uh, kind of the how-tos for the practitioner that hasn't utilized this, this before. But probably the most important part will be real live examples and stories from practitioners that are currently utilizing each of these strategies. And we're hoping to do those via video. And we've gotten great support from the AEP staff in producing those. So that's our primary goal. That's our biggest carrot, if you will, is to try and get out the real story of how it's working and hopefully encourage people to find the one that'll work for them. That's amazing to have these real life examples and videos. And I just think the members are going to be really excited about those examples. I think it takes all of us thinking outside the box. Could we hear some of these kind of novel emergency models from from our guests? Jessica, would you like to share with us how your practice works? Sure. So we're located in a pretty horse populated area in northwestern New Jersey, and there are a fair amount of equine veterinarians, but there's definitely a lot of work and emergencies to go around. So we were approached by another large practice in our area, questioning whether maybe forming an emergency cooperative would be an option for us and how it would work. We actually sat down and just had dinner with the other veterinarians and just kind of talked it out just to see, hey, is this an option for us? It is a little bit intimidating, you know, to think what the client perception would be, you know, when they have an emergency and another veterinarian that they don't know might be coming out. So we we'd kind of talked through our concerns and and then we took it back to our own practices to discuss and decide whether this was something we wanted to move forward with, which both of the practices did. So we actually then went to really write down our concerns kind of in a like a Google Doc where it's just like, okay, how do we build this? What are the logistics of all of this? And that took us a few weeks to kind of work out the kinks of, okay, how are we going to approach all of these issues? And one of them being client communication and how do we roll this out? I would say it took us about three or four months to officially roll out the emergency cooperative in our area. And we were the first in New Jersey to do it. It was something that we just didn't have another model in our area for. And since then, we actually, one right over the border in Pennsylvania, has formed another cooperative, as well as two additional emergency cooperatives of equine veterinarians in New Jersey. So I think that they saw that it was possible and they just needed that push. So it's been pretty cool to see. And honestly, the clients have taken pretty well to it. It was a little bit of a transition for them, but ultimately it's working pretty well. Now, how big is the group that's covering the, the ER? It kind of depends. So the the practice that we are have a cooperative with is BW Furlong and Associates, which is a large practice in New Jersey, but they also have veterinarians that travel to Florida in the winter. 
So it just depends on how many veterinarians are actually in New Jersey at that time. Usually the rotation for us is around six veterinarians in the ambulatory portion of the practice. I went from being on call 50% of my life to now probably once in, I would say like in a quarter, I'm on call two weekends and one weeknight a week about. So significantly improved. Of course, since we're taking on the clientele of two practices, when you are on call, you may be busier and seeing more emergencies, but kind of a trade-off. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so it can well. And one more question for you on this model. Um, how does the communication work? So if you see one of your the other practices clients, how does that work? We actually have an answering service that picks up both of the practices calls and whoever's on call receives the the communication that an emergency is calling. And it's up to that veterinarian who's on call to then reach back out to the client, uh, whether it's our client or BW Furlong's client, I would reach out. And we have moved both of our practices to a pay at time of service for emergencies. So um, we discussed that with the clients prior to going to the emergency. If appropriate, we would give them you know, an estimate or basically a you know, general estimate over the phone. And then I do collect all of the information from the clients, basically either on the phone or at what, as it gets to the barn, if the client is going to be there, you know, and I can actually physically meet them. Sometimes they're not there. So it just depends on the situation, but that is, you know, that's how we, how we do it. And then we also made a, it a very big point for us that all of their regular veterinary care is transferred back to their normal veterinarian that they see. So if I go see one of their clients, I always ask them, who do you normally see? And then I make it a point to contact that veterinarian via text, phone call, email, whatever, the next business day and update them on the case and send them the medical record so that they have that to go forward with. And I bet that communication just makes this system work. And thank you for sharing all this, because I think you're kind of setting a a great example for what's possible and improved quality of life for us equine veterinarians. Thank you. I have one question for Jess. Uh, I mean, if you've got so many vets involved in in the the on-calls, but between two practices. So if somebody calls and they're, how do you know they're a client of the other practice and not just some random person calling to an emergency service? That was a concern of ours. So we do have a general, we don't have a list because it would be difficult to print a list of every client and I don't have access to their medical record system. So we do have a list of people that we do not provide services to, you know, if they've had a bad experience or they've essentially say fired them as a client. We have a list of that that is printed in my truck if I need to reference it. It's up to the discretion of the veterinarian on call whether they want to see an emergency, meaning if I feel that I'm getting kind of a weird vibe from a client and like maybe they aren't really a client, I sometimes will reach out to the other vet. Like if they say, hey, I see so-and-so, you know, as my normal vet, sometimes I'll just send them a text and say, hey, do you know this client? And, And they'll just say, oh yeah, that's, you know, our normal, I see this horse and all that. So we're pretty helpful with each other because we want it to work. But yeah, it is a concern and we kind of just leave it up to the discretion of whoever's on call 
as to whether like, okay, it's two o'clock in the morning, this person can't give me the name of a veterinarian that they see in the practice, then maybe they're not a regular client. And then I decide if I want to go and see that emergency, then I usually will take a deposit from the person prior to leaving for the call. That's great. Thank you, Jess. Now let's hear from James, who has a 100% emergency practice. Fill us in on, on how your practice works. We've got a, a fun little uh, practice down here. It's We're based in Louisville, Kentucky, or the outskirts of Louisville, Kentucky. It's a 100% uh, after hours and weekends emergency practice. Uh, it's fully staffed with veterinarians that that's all they do. They don't work days. So our goal was to have it, you know, a kind of a regional service for the area. It's 100% ambulatory. We ship everything that needs surgery to one of the big referral hospitals. We're blessed here in Kentucky to have referral hospitals about every stone's throw. So it's kind of nice for that aspect of it. But we wanted to set up a practice that had a sustainability and a work-life balance to keep our veterinarians going. And so basically that's the way we set it up. They don't have any responsibilities during the day. Daytime emergencies are covered by the referring veterinarians. They go on call in the afternoon and they're on call all night until the next morning, and then they shut off the phone and they're done. Go to sleep. <laughs> they go to sleep or go do, go ride their horse, whatever they're going to do. How many doctors do you have working for you? Currently, we have two. I'm looking for another one if any of y'all want to come on down. <laughs> Currently, we have two. So they basically work a three day work week. By the time you average out the days of the week and the weekends, it works out to a three day work week. And there is just an on call basis. That's great. And are you available for any vet in the area or do you have member practices that will direct their clients to yours? Our service is a subscription-based service and we are subscription for the veterinarians in the area. Probably shouldn't put this out over the airwaves. We don't turn down an emergency. I mean, if your horse has got a problem, it's going to be seen. However, subscriptions do have some perks and things that, that go along with it. And make it so that it is a uh, a viable option. So what's involved in the subscription? So the subscription, it's basically uh, your practice A wants to be a member and they they pay a fee and they get their their clients get seen first in queue. So their clients get a, a premium placement. If there's multiple emergencies, they're first. And then they get uh, full medical records shipped to them the next morning before they get into the office. There's several other advantages to that, but uh, those, are, those are the two big ones and they're guaranteed service no matter what they will be seen. Great. I mean, those medical records there the next morning, that's a big deal. That's great. I like this model. For sure. And do you collect at the time of service like at, at Jessica's practice? Yes. Okay. Yes. All of our emergency clients, they all understand it's collected time of service. And, and that's one of the great things about this being an independent practice is that we could set that up from the beginning. This practice is separate from any other practice in the area, so we don't have to worry about people poaching daytime calls and things like that. They don't work during the day, so they can't. And then we can set up rules from the outset of you're going to pay at the time of service, and you know this is how it is, this is the way it works, and uh, that's been a, amazingly smooth. 
You bring up one thing there. I just want to question because what you brought up there, I was going to ask Jessica this, is like, so it's easy in James' practice because you're separate, your own entity, but within the two practices, what if a client from your colleagues comes to you and says, oh, I like your practice better. Can I be, can you be my vet? How do you handle that? We had that discussion as well. And we know that that is kind of the nature of, you know, human nature to sometimes want to have a preference for another veterinarian. And we see that kind of in our area in general, sometimes a client will use us for a few years and then say, oh, I kind of want to use this practice. So we try, at least in our area, we've tried to kind of all help support each other because honestly, there's enough work to go around. So of course, it's still upsetting sometimes when a client leaves and goes to another practice. But we we do our best to always direct that client back to their regular veterinarian. Say I go see a horse and I gave it a shot of Exceed and in four days it needs a second dose. I would not make an appointment to recheck that horse. I would say you need to make an appointment with Dr. Hendrickson from Furlongs. That's how I do that. And if the client contacts me about the case, I just say, I'm going to give Dr. Hendrickson a call. So I'm just using him as an example. But I would then kind of continue to direct those communications back to the regular practice out of respect. If at the end of the day, if the client decides to move and change practices, we can't really control that. But we, we do our best to have the courtesy to kind of continue to encourage them in that direction. That's great. I think that's all you can do. Yeah. So I have a surprise question for all of you. And I didn't write it down. There's, I sort of like to get your, uh, without thinking about it too much, we'll start with Mike and Leanne and then Jessica and James. And basically the question is, what has surprised you or what have you learned that actually you know, surprised you from being on the subcommittee? that was made you maybe do one of those aha moments like I never thought of this. So Mike, let's start with you. Uh, maybe I'd be able to share two things. One was uh, in those early conversations, I thought that there was uh, potential that we would create models for members to consider that we would brainstorm. What I found or what we found, I think, is that we're really just reporting successful models already that already exist in practice. And so uh, just as Jessica and James discussed their practice models, these are in place and they're working and, and our subcommittee is simply reporting on it. So I, I think that was a, a big aha moment for me was that with all of the challenges that we were hearing about with emergency coverage, Many, many, many answers are already out there, uh, just waiting to be rediscovered. And then I think the other is the ability for our members to kind of look through various models and examples and these success stories or profiles of practices that are working and really be able to select the things that resonate with them that this could work for our practice uh, or this couldn't work for our practice. And so they're not pigeonholed at all. So I think there's an opportunity for a lot of creativity. And as the subcommittee continues to develop these toolkits, uh, we'd also like to create a forum or a platform for communities to develop around those uh, discussion groups. Um, so those are the things that are pretty exciting. Excellent. How about you, Leanne? I think for me, I think I just had tunnel vision. You know, I, I was seeing the problem through my lens of what I've seen in my practice and being in a, uh, our areas 
densely populated. And for me, it was simple. I thought, oh my gosh, why are we beating this horse? Companion Animal has shown us how to do this. You create these centralized locations. They already exist all over the country, all these private practice referral hospitals. They're already staffed 24 hours a day. Let's just open these things up and, and turn them into a general, you know, a general service. But my eyes were opened with some of the solo practitioners that are rural. And it took me a while to realize that that's not going to work everywhere. So for me, I think it was just the, the awareness that one, one model is not going to fit everybody. Excellent. And Jessica, what have you learned from being on the subcommittee? I'm going to echo Leanne here. Really, again, since I'm in an area which is pretty populated, I agree that I, I really did not think of the rural solo practitioner that has three hours in between potential emergencies and that something like a cooperative, that's not a viable option. So, and I believe that a very large percentage of our membership are solo practitioners and we do have to think of them and often they are not thought of, or I guess maybe not naturally thought of in, in my practice. So I, I think we need to represent them and how important that is because it's definitely something that they have to struggle with and they really carry the burden on their shoulders of providing services to so many animals in such a large range. And it, it, so it's something that we're still working on. Excellent. Yeah, because I think a significant amount of AAP members are solo practitioners. So this is going to be really helpful to a lot of members. And, and James, what about yourself? What have you learned from being on the subcommittee? I think probably first thing I learned was uh, I was blown away by the all of us. There were what fourteen of us on the committee, and everybody is looking for a way to see the emergencies and to take care of the emergencies. Uh, that was kind of a, a a shift we had to make in our practice when we started this because we like probably most of us on this call, uh, most of us in this podcast have been guilty of trying not to see the emergencies. We've probably most of us looked at that and said that picture and said, I'll be fine to see tomorrow. And it was, it was very interesting and refreshing to see everybody in our group was trying to find ways that we could see these things and service these uh, animals and get the emergencies taken care of and still have a life. Uh, and trying to solve that problem. And, and that was a, a wonderful, refreshing thing to see is that everybody was coming together, uh, you know, and trying to approach that. And, and we have all these tremendous ideas on, you know, things that are working throughout the country. It, it was very refreshing. You know, there's a lot of gloom and doom. Sometimes whenever you start talking about emergencies, uh, when you get all of us equine veterinarians together and we start talking about emergencies, there are always horror stories. And, uh, you know, we, we all have our, our wonderful stories. But it was really fun to see the positive, upbeat group of people that are are out there solving the problem. Uh, it, it was it was a wonderful, refreshing group. I uh, am so thankful to hear these unique ideas uh, and practice models, and we uh, kind of all need to think outside the box. We want to continue to offer the best of care, whether it's daytime or nighttime or weekend. But we want to be able to have a good quality of life as well at the same time. So. I, I just want to thank each of you, Mike, Jessica, James, and Leanne, for sharing this this information with our listeners and for working with this subcommittee to find the solution. 
and to share it with all of us. Yeah, just also just again, I just want to thank uh, Berger Engelheim for their sponsorship of the podcast. That really helps to get this message across to members. So thank you. And thank you all. Really appreciate what you're doing for the committees and, and for membership. Yes, thank you. Nice chatting with you all. Thank you, guys. Thank you. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. Beringer Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients, the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine.